listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course, and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Hi there, I'm Tom Natchez from Dream Car Garage, Sports Car Revolution and the USGT Championship. You're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I always do when I'm in town. Hey guys, this is Robert, and like I said, you never know where I'm going to be next. Right now I'm at Daytona at the uh, Speedway. Uh, the event is called the Roar Before the 24, and uh, I'll tell you what, there's some mighty fast cars here. So, I mean, we've got Porsches, we got Ferraris, we've got Fords, we got BMWs, we got Corvettes, we got Camaros, we got everything. It's all here. So, uh, stay tuned. I'm going to walk around, I'm going to interview a few drivers, and uh, bring you guys up to speed. All right, catch you guys later. All right, we're here at the Roar Before the 24, and I'm sitting here with my old friend, Terry Borscheller, who's uh, racing, getting ready to prepare for the 24-hour uh, race here at Daytona this year. Terry, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me on, and I'm doing great. We've uh, got a lot of work ahead of us. we got a new car, the Chevrolet Corvette Daytona prototype, and uh, we were set back the first couple of tests uh, because of some normal teething issues with a new car and this uh this weekend's been real productive for our team and and in causing the car to go forward too now have you driven the corvette before in any previous races nope 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 so this is the first time after this car what sets this car different from last year's model i think the look of the car i mean when you when you see the new daytona prototypes not just the chevrolet corvette which is one of the prettiest ones out there but even the new riley they just uh, the daytona prototypes have a uh unique and new look uh, that's going to be really attractive, I think, for the fans, and uh, they're just a just a better looking car than the old DP cars. What kind of horsepower does this car have? Uh, we're limited to 500, 550, mm -hmm. and uh, all the manufacturers are limited to, to a specific horsepower. Okay, what kind of times are you turning? Are you turning, let's say, like in the 140, 145 range? Or? I think the the track record was qualifying last year, which was a 40.09, I believe. And uh, we're running practice times out there that are in the high 41s, 42 flat okay. range. And uh, I think qualifying this 
for this coming 50th Daytona, 24 will probably be maybe even dip into the 39s, but for sure, again, back in the low 40s. Okay, now the track is what, three and a half miles long, right, basically? Yep. The road course here at Daytona. And when you say low 40s, you're talking a minute and 40 some odd seconds running around the track. Yeah, exactly, a okay. minute minute and 40 seconds. Now, when did you, tell us a little bit how you got involved in racing. When was your first uh, driving experience? Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's the whole idea. All right, Terry. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started in racing and what was your, your drive and your motivation. I started back in 1979 racing go-karts and my dad and I did it together. Uh, my motivation really was uh, I had been on a motorcycle as long as I can remember. I think I got my first bike when I was five years old and uh, always rode in the neighborhood and uh, loved motocross riding and, and that's really what I wanted to do was race bikes. And I was 12 and uh, my parents both were kind of down on me racing motorcycles just because they knew there was a pretty high chance I was going to get broke up or hurt pretty good. And uh, so the, the next Christmas there was a sprint go-kart. Uh, under the tree? Under the tree. And, right. and my dad and I, uh, my dad had started racing about a year before. He had raced back in the 50s. He had raced carts and, and actually wanted to race sports cars but ended up having a family and a business. and. Mm-hmm. I uh, wasn't able to pursue that dream and he'd been tinkering around with the go-karts a little bit in the late 70s and uh, so it was good timing for him and I to have something to do together and and that has really given me some great experience. Uh, I was just telling a guy that I'm going to be co-driving with here for the Continental Challenge race that I've been driving around Daytona since 1980 and it's hard to believe it's been so many years, over 30 years and uh, that was all from the, the karting days. So you actually raced carts here back in the day then? Oh yeah, this was, and still is, the first uh, race of the, uh, uh, for the national championship in carts. It, they run it in December. How fast can somebody go, I mean, if, you were, if I was in a go-kart or you back then, how fast did you go around? We, we clocked a twin-engine lay-down endurance cart at 147 miles an hour. So and you're what, an inch off the ground, something yeah, like that? Yeah, That's amazing. It's insane. It is insane. The power to weight. Uh, especially with a twin engine, which is I ran what I ran towards the end of my karting career was uh, it's it's just a thrill. Now you got in the cars, so tell us how the car thing came about. After karting, then you got in the cars. Yeah, I I basically uh, SCCA. No, I didn't really ever do SCCA other, other than some national events to do testing in that for mm-hmm. different series that I was racing in. But I I didn't really see myself as being able to run professionally or to really get outside of go-karts just because I didn't really know the business that well mm-hmm. uh, and I definitely didn't have any money didn't come from any money didn't have any backing didn't know how to get any backing and uh, had a pretty radical life change became a Christian in 1987 ended up going to Ecuador and doing did some missions trips and uh, stayed there for three and a half months and uh, my whole life was radically uh, turned upside down during that period of time and when I came back I thought I was going to start uh, you know, pastoring a church or something. I wasn't sure what I was going to do, but it was going to involve ministry, uh, what my definition at the time of ministry was. And uh, there was really no doors opening there, and I, I didn't really know how to pursue that either. And uh, got a piece of advice from a college and career pastor, and he said, uh, well, what are you passionate about? And I said, man, I'm still passionate about racing. I love racing. And he goes, well, is there anything that you can do that would get you in that arena that you can think of? And I said, well, 
I went through a driving school. It was the Bondurant School of High Performance Driving. And uh, I said I could call them up and see, you know, if they had something painting stripes or whatever on the racetrack. I, I had no idea what I would do. And uh, I called up and lo and behold, my, my instructor that I had when I went through as a student was now the chief instructor. And they had just moved. They had just moved from uh, Sears Point to Phoenix, and half the uh, instructors didn't want to move. And so he said, I tell you what, I'll hire you. He said, I, I tell you what, I'll hire you, to, uh, I'll hire you to be an instructor. I'll put you through every course that we have on us, and, uh, and, I'll, and I'll have you instructing. And that was a huge transition for me because I, I was able to sit down next to guys like Johnny O'Connell and Bill Cooper, uh, guys that had been in the business for a long time. And I was able to listen to them, how they talk to sponsors, how they talk to their team owners. And uh, I just learned a lot about the business. I asked them, you know, a hundred questions in a week. I'd, I'd always have a list of questions because I wanted to know how do you, how do you get a ride? And on top of that, I was also driving cars constantly. And back in those days, we had the Mustangs at the school, and they were hard to make go fast, you know, because they don't want to turn, uh, especially back in those days. They didn't want to stop. So you really had to do a lot of manipulating as the driver to make them go fast. And so I learned, you know, I was driving those things all the time. And that was a And we also had Formula Fords. That's what we, uh, that's what we taught the advanced classes in was the Formula Ford cars, and I drove those a lot. So I was constantly driving, and that was, you know, that was a, a couple of years of that program, and it got me just primed for a spot in, a, in an actual race car, and I got my shot with uh, Dominic Massari, and, okay. and then very shortly after that, Steve Celine called me up, and that was, that was really my first big break, because that ride led to a championship in the World Challenge, and actually, I had a championship in the same year in the Motorola Cup with the other ride that I had. So I had two championships in the same year, just in just my second year of pro racing. And that really catapulted me into other rides and opportunities. And uh, Steve Celine ended up moving his program from World Challenge up to GTO in Grand Am. And that's how I started my relationship in Grand Am. And then uh, the project of building the S7 came along. And, you know, Steve, everybody that knows or follows that car knows the history about it. And, and just for me to be involved at the, at the entry level of that program was just fantastic. And, you know, five Le Mans later, you know, here we are talking about the history of the S7. But that was a great ride for me at the uh, ALMS Championship in 2001. And then, uh, like I said, going to Le Mans five times. It, it was with the S7 three, time, three of the five, but still it opened the way for me to go to Le Mans also because that was always Steve's desire. And, uh, you know, here we are many years later. Tell us about the Celine, the S7. Now, that was the only one, only S7 race car that was ever built in campaign, correct? No, no. There were, there were a handful that were built in campaign. Franz Conrad uh, ran a couple. Uh, there were some European teams that bought okay. in the campaign. Asimco was probably took the car farther than it ever went from a development standpoint. Uh, and then, you know, we had the factory run the car the first year. Um, so there were, there were, there were, at the over the whole package. There were over the whole time period. There were probably 
10 or 15 of those cars. that were did, raced. Did Ford ever get on, bo- on board? Never. So Ford never got behind the no. S7 project? No. Wow. Now, what kind of an engine? That's it was, a, a, it was a Ford block. 60. It was a Ford block. Ford block. But it was Celine from the block up. It was Celine from the block. And the displacement on that was what? It was over seven and a half. Seven, li- seven liter. Seven liter. Yeah. Over okay. seven hundred horsepower. Now you were telling me about that car earlier. That had some real peculiar driving characteristics. What was that? You're talking about you had to drive the car from the rear or something. Yeah. It it just had a lot of weight in the back and it was a big motor heavy motor and but it had a lot of downforce also so it, it complemented the car to a degree but when you're when you're going on the edge and when we were going up against the factory corvettes uh battling them which was our main competition you know you had to wring its neck to get everything out of it uh to be competitive with the corvettes which we were on many occasions but to drive the car you, there, there was a certain rotation that would have to happen and you'd have to really know the and trust the downforce that you were going to have available because once that rotation started, if you weren't aware of it, it would make you check up and slow down because of what you felt. But I had so much time in that car that I, I ended up getting used to that and kind of expecting that as part of my driving style. And, uh, and just what a, what a fascinating car to to drive and to race for so many years. I'm, I'm just thinking in my mind, I'm trying to draw a parallel. I don't know if you've ever done any vintage racing, but for example, like the long tail version, Porsche 917s, the long tail version of the uh, GT40, they all had similar characteristics. They're basically, you want to say almost a mid-engine car yeah. in some respects. So would it be a fair statement to say that those cars all pretty much handle the same? And uh, you know, I've it, never I've never driven any of the uh, any of those cars particularly, but um, I would say probably similar because okay. the, you know the weight was was uh, probably a little higher than it should have been and a little heavier than it should have been. Uh, but you know, it, it, it wasn't a it, it it didn't it didn't slow the car down necessarily. It was just a characteristic that you really had to get used to. Mm-hmm. That was that was pretty much it. But a phenomenal car. Now, back in the day when you were racing at Bob Bondurant, you started. You were actually an instructor there for a long time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you had. Did they start out with Fox bodies? Is that what you had? And then you evolved into the '93, '94 body style. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So then, when you worked with, uh, when you were driving for Masari, which I was part of the crew at that time, which is where I met you, in fact. And you, you were living in Florida back then, right? I had gone back to Florida for about a year, just because I had no family or anything out in mm-hmm. Phoenix. Okay. And then ended up, uh, I worked a deal before I moved back to Florida that I'd, I'd work on a contracted basis with Bob. And I was also racing full-time. So okay. uh, I was running Formula Fords at the time. So I would, I would go back and teach for Bob for four months out of the year and then uh, in the off-season and then do the races. Now, in Masari's case, he had a 1995 Cobra R. That was one of the first cars you started driving for him. So would it be fair to say that your experience with the Mustang at the Bob Bonneron tracks gave you kind of an edge as a driver oh, yeah. driving the Mustang? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt. And it was, a, was there a huge difference between the Fox body cars and the 94-95 body style? I don't, I don't remember the differences in the body, but I, I, I also know that the reason Steve Celine called me was because uh, either Bob or someone at the school had told him that I make a Mustang go faster than anybody they'd ever seen. And I was young enough and, and, uh, Crazy enough. and my ego was big enough <laughs> that I actually believed him. But I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I was the fastest ever in a Mustang, but I, I, I think I believed that I was at the time. So that was probably pretty important because it, 
it landed me some really good rides with uh, with Masari and with Steve. Now, in between there, um, actually one of your nemesis, or actually I should say a friendly competitor, was uh, Dario from uh, Steeda, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I talked to Dario. He's up in Atlanta right now. But in the meantime there, you slid in a few rides with uh, in a BMW. Remember? Yeah. yeah. The that, 54 car? Yeah, that was with uh, Bell Jim Bell. Yeah, and that was a little bit later on. I was running okay. a BMW in the World Challenge okay. uh, with Coe Vanderveden. He's a owner of a BMW dealership in Greeley, Colorado. And okay. he was one of my one of my first rides, also, and uh, yeah. So I got a lot of history with Ford and BMW. Super. Now right, the, the the racing the racing event that's coming up here. You're basically running. This is a Grand Am race, right? Now, do you cross over and do some driving in ALMS too, American Le Mans series? I, I have done. Uh, the, the last time I ran in ALMS was in 2008. That was also the last time I went to Le Mans. They've they've got a driver structure with the challenge classes that mm-hmm. make it really difficult because of my driver ranking. They have a driver ranking that okay. they do. And if you're a, if you're ranked a gold or a platinum, which I am, then you can't, uh, you, they can only have one gold or platinum per team in the long races. I and see. because of, I'm full-time here in the Rolex series, the only long races I can, I can only do the long races. Okay. So for me to have a, I'm X'd out of LMPC, LMP2, GTC, it X's me out of all those classes. Oh, really? So that's been pretty frustrating because I'm, you know, I'm watching guys go to Le Mans, I'm watching guys run at Sebring and Petit that, you know, I, I know I can uh, compete. Yeah, and it's it's really frustrating because because of, of actually being ranked higher, I don't have as many rides available. So, and with the schedule conflicts, it it, it, it basically X's me out of the opportunity to, to to ever go there again unless they change something or I'm not running in the Rolex full time. Wow. Now in the past, I've had Hurley Haywood on. I've had Dan Gurney. I've had a number of drivers on that have all campaigned cars and race cars at Sebring and Daytona and Le Mans. Would it be a fair statement to say that Le Mans is the epitome of road races that every driver aspires to? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's it? It's by far, it's it's the best event that I've ever been a part of as far as racing. It's uh, it, There's just something special about uh, the, the experience that you have when you go over there. The first few times I was there, there was a huge amount of pressure. Uh, and I, I don't want to say I didn't enjoy it because I really did enjoy it. It was it was uh, it was the debut of the S7 uh, at Le Mans. We finished on the podium, and that was such a remarkable experience to be looking out over 300,000 people and just the. Uh, you know, I had fans that would come up and they would give me pictures to sign when I was racing go karts in 1979. Pictures that I'd, I've never even seen before, Amazing. and I've never, I've never experienced that anywhere else ever in the states. So that was really special to me because there were people that were uh, in another country that were had had photographs of my racing from when I was a teenager, uh, in in before, and that was very very special. But the last couple of runs that I did at Le Mans which was 2006 with the Simcoe and 2008 with uh, an Aston Martin, actually, uh, was really something special for me because I, I made sure that I absorbed the whole experience because you never know when you're going to go back. And uh, I, I for sure hope that I get another shot at a win there and, and just to, to run the race again. But you really never, you do never know when you're going to, going to go back there get that opportunity yeah so now how many coming up here now fast forward to the end of the month the 24-hour race how many cars in your class well it's the 50th running of the 24 hours of daytona it's a right. huge event the the paddock area is sold out they're selling tickets like they've never sold before it's it's going to be a huge event 
the most cars I think that we'll probably have in the Daytona prototype category are 20. And we'll probably have about 50 or more GT cars, would be my guess. So what do you feel your prospects are? I think they're good. They're all good. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, our team, unfortunately, is in a position where we've, every team has changed something because they've got the new bodies that have come out. Uh, our team is in a position that, uh, to face more obstacles because we've changed more than anybody else. We've changed the motor. We've gone from the Porsche Cayenne to the Chevrolet. Uh, we've changed the chassis. We went from the Riley to the Coyote chassis, and we've changed the body because with the Chevrolet motor comes the Corvette bodywork. Mm -hmm. So we've we've changed everything, except wow. the team. <laughs> the guys are the same. How much testing did you do this weekend? Every opportunity? Yeah, we've we've had. Uh, this is our third day of the three-day test, the mm -hmm. roar before the 24, and. We're, we're making the most prog progress. We had a lot of uh, little obstacles that really kept us from advancing the car from a speed standpoint up until this weekend. So it's been a very positive test for us. Was it aerodynamics? Was it mechanical? or All of the above. All of the above. Yeah, we're learning a huge amount and testing a lot of stuff. And uh, Ian Watts, our engineer, he'll come back uh, for, the, for the race and hopefully be able to mastermind putting it all together on the car where it makes us go faster that's the point now this is the last testing that you're going to be able to do before the 24-hour race huh? this is it yeah is it. all the drivers will probably go to the shop once and do some ins and outs uh driver changes and and do some testing with the with the actual cockpit just getting the getting the interior of the car set up the way everybody needs it and uh just to make the race weekend go smoother. But other than that, this will be it. Okay, now you're going to go out here and do some more testing. The last test for today, right? In about yep. an hour or so? Yeah, I'll drive. Uh, I'll probably be the last one in the car. I think Max Pappas and I are going to split the last session. Okay, well, super. Who are the other drivers with you? Uh, on our cars, JC France and Barbosa. Okay. And, and Joao and I are, are in for the year. Okay, and then you guys basically drive, what, during the, in the actual race, you do like two, three-hour stints, and then you switch? So we'll, we'll do double stints probably all the way through the race. Which oh, will double be, stints? Yeah, be, depending on the yellows, probably average a couple hours each. Okay. Uh, and we'll do probably four of those stints if everything goes according to plan. And, uh, yeah, should be a should be a really good race. We got our team car, the five car, that's Krishna uh, uh, Fittipaldi, who I've won this race with in 2000, uh, 2004, is running with Darren Law and David Donahue, which they've, won, they've all won it also. So we should have a really strong two-car team lineup for the uh, for the. 50th running and I think we're gonna hopefully come away with a podium or maybe even a win. Super. Well now Terry, just for our listeners again, tell us which car it is and uh, who your other drivers are. Really. I'm gonna be in the uh, Daytona prototype car number nine uh, and that'll be with Max Pappas, uh, Joao Barbosa and JC France. And the sponsor of the car, the name on the car? Action Express is the team. Okay. And then also I'll be running the Continental Challenge race on Friday oh. in, a, in a one series BMW in the ST class actually, which I haven't run an ST for about 10 years. So it'll be be a good experience for me. And I've got a new co-driver and teammate there uh, in Mike Lamara. And uh, we've got a brand new team that's gonna be debuting that car for us. And that's Burton Racing. And they'll be, uh, they're based out of Indianapolis and they'll be, they'll be chomping at the bit to, uh, to try to get that car to finish well too. Well, super. Terry, I wanna thank you for uh, taking a few minutes to talk to us here at the uh, Daytona. Roar, what are they called again? The Roar Before the 24. The Roar Before the 24. And I wish you the best of luck and I hope you win. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks okay. for having me on. All right, guys, we're going to walk around. We're going to find some more people to talk to.
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Okay, we're here at Daytona, and uh, I'm with Alex Job of Alex Job Racing. He's got a shop up in uh, Traveras, and uh, he's campaigning two Porsches this uh, this year at the 24-hour race. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So, tell us uh, tell us about your cars. Uh, we've got uh, number 23 and number 24, two cars. Um, WeatherTech uh, sponsored car in a 23, and uh, McKenna Porsche and Battery Tender sponsored on a 24. Uh, both of them are. Um, uh, GT3 Cup cars um, that we've converted to the Grand Am Rolex GT spec, and there's a lot of work you got to do. You got to uh, got to cut out the uh, rear wheel wells and raise them up for the taller Continental tire. You got to flare the rear fenders. You got to put uh, all different suspension on it, and a long list of things we do. We've even changed to an RSR gearbox in a 23 car. So there's a lot of work to convert these cars from the, the stock um, Porsche GT3 Cup spec to the Rolex GT spec, but it's all done and, uh, and the cars are doing really good. Now you referenced you changed the transmission to an RSR. What's the difference between an RSR and a GT3? Well, the, the, uh, the GT3 is a six-speed sequential gearbox. Okay. Um, and it's basically what the earlier RSR gearbox was up to, I believe it was 07. Mm-hmm. And then um, 08, Porsche changed uh, to a different gearbox in the RSR. And the reason for it was to um, be able to get the car lower and get a higher um, output shaft dimension so that the axle angle gets to be straighter and not so acute um, as you lower the car. So. Um, so the 23 car has the uh, Grand Am has allowed that conversion now. So uh, we've even done the RSR gearbox in that car. And there's a few other cars here 
that uh, a few other Porsches that have that conversion too. So it allows you to have the car uh, a little bit lower and uh, you know, consequently just a little more competitive. I got you. Now as far as gear ratio, doesn't there's no difference in the gear no, ratio? No, 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 no. Uh, you, can, you can gear either one the same. They're both six-speed sequential gearboxes. Um, it's just uh, the biggest thing is it just lets you drop the car a little bit lower, which is, you know, ultimately better for uh, ultimate lap time. But at the end of the day, it's a 24-hour uh, endurance race, you know, and it's going to come down to uh, being fast enough but also being smart enough and, you and know, last. stay out of trouble, stay out of the pits, yeah, last. And, um, you know, I, I think... Uh, a car with or without a RSR gearbox can win. Okay. Now, would it be fair to say that a lot of these cars now have kind of evolved in kind of like giant spec racing? So pretty much all your engines, all the cars in your class and your GT class are pretty much similar cars, right? So... Yeah, as far as the engines go, all the Porsches are the identical engine. Okay. Um, the rule is that the engine has to be built and sealed by Porsche Motorsport North America. Okay. So uh, all the Porsche engines are built only by Porsche. And that, you know, that goes more into the, you know, we're starting to live in a spec world where, you know, the racing is so close and so tight and uh, all the rule makers in the series want to control the performance. So by having one engine builder, um, then they know the baseline for all the Porsches is the same, at least power-wise, engine-wise. Now, in the last session here earlier this afternoon, uh, I understand you were like uh, the top car, fastest car, in, and I guess you got called over to tech. So you and the fastest Camaro and the fastest Corvette and, and a couple yeah. other cars. So what happened during that uh, tech uh, they, session? Nothing. They just uh, they just took the uh, yeah the fastest Porsche and second fastest Porsche and then. Uh, Fastest Camaro, fastest uh, BMW, and fastest uh, Ferrari, and okay. and took them over there and just run through and you know do some basic uh, checks to make sure everybody was you know still conforming to the rules. You know this is testing, so you could, in theory, you know do something different, which doesn't make any sense because you okay. might as well run how you're going to race it. So um, you know they're just doing their job. They're they're taking the fastest of each uh, brand and running it through tech and just confirming uh, the specifications. Okay, but in theory, or in reality now, if this was the, a real race and you won, they they could actually, in effect, have you pull the engine and then send it where, to North Carolina and have it torn oh, yeah. down? And oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Which that's something they didn't, they didn't do basically in the old days. No, in the old days, first of all, in the old days, uh, there was no spec engine builder. I used to build my own engines in the old days. You know? okay. So you, you could run whatever it is, a Porsche, Mazda, BMW, whatever you want to run, and you could build your own engines. You could even build your own cars back then, mm -hmm. you know, which I did. Uh, but now, um, you can't do that. Now, the you know, each car, whether it's a Mazda or a Porsche, whatever, has a particular spec. Like the Mazdas are tube chassis cars, and the BMWs are tube chassis and so on, but the Ferrari and the Audi and the Porsche, they're all unibody cars produced by those car manufacturers. So they're and, using, it, they're and it's using, a spec. Okay, so they're using their original tubs, basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't don't even know that you could race a tube chassis Porsche. Maybe you could, you know, but nobody's done it. But uh, but it, it's, you know, it's more in line with how all racing is evolving to where um, the rules are more tightly controlled and as you've got diversity and the manufacturers 
the cars and so on, they've got to assign a specific uh, builder for cars, engines, and so on. So it also becomes a question of economics as well. Oh, yeah. By doing this, it kind of keeps the costs relative in terms it, of racing. It makes it, it a little bit more affordable. Absolutely. absolutely. All right, speaking of the old days, tell us about your old days and tell us how you got into racing. I've heard some good stories, and I'd like you to elaborate on those. Well, it, that might take a while, but I'll you do a, a quick summary. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, um, I, I spent 20 years in the car business, the retail car business, um, dealership level uh, Porsche and Audi and Mercedes and during those years I raced on and off as a so-called gentleman racer so first year that I actually drove here at Daytona to 24 hours was in 1976 and then I so I raced back then um, as a gentleman racer uh, while I was in the car business and then uh, and then after 20 years of being in the car business I decided to pursue racing full-time so I left the car business and started my I started my own team two years before that just as a part-time thing and then two years later I took it full-time and then decided to pursue a, a full-time um, race team occupation and uh, it started in my two-car garage at home um, 450 square feet or something like that. Now, are you from Florida? Did it start here in Florida, your whole racing career? Or? Uh, not originally. I, I'm originally from South Africa. I, I, I was born in South Africa, although I don't have an accent anymore because I came to the States when I was 10 years old. But then I moved to the States to Florida. Okay. And I actually grew up on the west coast of Florida. And then um, when I got into, uh, when I started in the car business and so on, I started there and then I moved down to South Florida, um, East Coast, and then worked my way up the uh, East Coast to, to Central Florida and finished my career actually in the Orlando area in Central Florida okay. in the car business. And then your shop's in Traveras, which is not near uh, Mount Dora, right? Yeah, yeah. It was originally in Castleberry, which is part of Orlando, suburb of Orlando. And then uh, uh, 10, 11 years ago, I built a shop and moved out to Traveras. So I like it out there. You know, you got Mount Dora, Traveras, Leesburg, Eustis. Um, kind of a, you know, a somewhat more rural area, and, and we're in a rural part of Tavares, so there's nobody behind me except uh, wilderness, you know, which I like, and, uh, you know, away from the hustle and bustle, I keep a pretty low profile out there. Now, you've always been partial to Porsche, so have you always raced uh, Porsches, even when you were club racing? And no, I actually started with uh, Saabs. Oh, okay. Uh, when I... When I uh, I, I raced uh, 356 in autocrossing a bit, and then, and then my first championship actually, which was in autocrossing, was in a Saab. Okay. And then I got into SCCA uh, with Saabs, and uh, and then went back to Porsches uh, when I came to this level. So when I started in the uh, mid to late 70s in IMSA, it was with Porsches. Okay. Who were some of your drivers back then that you co-drove with? Anybody notable that uh, names that are familiar with people? Um, yeah, when I when I started, um, one of my co-drivers that unfortunately is not with us anymore was Rusty Bond, and Rusty's an old-time Porsche name, very famous name back from the 70s and 80s. Um, but when I uh, when I came back full-time this time, um, until I got out of the seat at that time. Some of the drivers were uh, Buzz McCall, okay. uh, 
very famous uh, Trans Am team owner and so on, Ed Skoll, Bandit sponsorship. Uh, Chris Kraft from the uh, Kraft family, the Red Racing uh, team family. Uh, um, Terry, Terry Walters um, out of Orlando that uh, used to run in the GTP cars. Um, I don't know. But, but, but then when I got out of the seat and just concentrated on uh, owning the team and running the team and building the engines and the cars and so on, then uh, I got a list of drivers that just is incredible. I mean, Bill Oberlin and Anthony Lazaro and Court uh, Wagner, Kelly Collins, uh, Randy Popst. Uh, yeah, Butch, uh, Lightsinger yeah Butch Lightsinger, all the Porsche guys, Lucas Lur, Sasha Masson, oh, yeah. Timo Bernhardt, um, Ramadima, Jörg Bork, Bergmeister, Pat Long, Mike Rockenfeller. All Porsche people. Yeah, yeah, all Porsche guys, and then also Joey Hand. Um, so know, how, how many cars in your class, in your, in your uh, classes for this race, the 24-hour race? You know, the last time I looked, I think it was either 43 or 44 cars. It's amazing. There's, I think, 14 DPs and 43 or 44 GTs. It's, I don't know that we've ever raced here in a class with that many cars in the one class. It's uh, amazing. Now, the results of this time trials, this time, the events that are going this weekend, is that any indication to how you think you might do in the 24-hour race? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We're uh, very pleased with the performance of the 23 car. Um, we've got to step up the 24 just a little bit, but we're here with um, uh, with some drivers that haven't driven here before, and that car has a, an, an older, tired engine and gearbox in it that's time to get serviced and make fresh when we come back for the race. So it'll be better at the race. Um, I'm really very pleased with uh, how our day, how our three days have gone. Now we got one more session to go, one more hour. So I don't want to jinx myself. Okay. Both cars are going to go out in this last hour. So hopefully uh, our success continues this last hour. Okay. Well, that's good. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and I want to wish you the best of luck. Thank you. And I'm a big Porsche supporter, so I hope you guys win. Thank you, Alex. I mean, uh, my. Porsche history runs really deep, and, uh, and I'm you know very proud of it. Well, that's good. Thank so, you for having me. Back to you. Thank you. Bye bye. Uh, that was Alex Job, and uh, yes, he's a local favorite, and we certainly hope that he wins. Hi, this is Norm Gravowski, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. All right, listeners, we have Sam calling in from uh, Mecham Auctions. Welcome, Sam Murtaugh, to uh, Nostalgic Radio on Cars. Sam, are you there? I'm here. How are you? Pretty good. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Mecham Auctions. As a matter of fact, tell us uh, how you got started and what your background is a little bit so we can uh, get our listeners a little up to speed on uh, on you. Well, I'm the, the marketing director for Mecham Auctions. Um, been working with Dana for, uh, I don't know, for almost 10 years, full-time for the last five years, and, and loving every minute of it. Um, you know, we um, working for the... Uh, 
the largest collector car auction house in the country is never a dull moment, that's for certain. So we're just preparing right now for Kissimmee, which is taking the crown as the current world's largest collector car auction. We'll have over 2,000 cars. We're currently we're at 2,074 cars headed for Florida in about a week and a half on the 24th. So pretty much just uh, completely engulfed and getting ready for that auction right now. Wow, that's super. Now, your background is a car guy. Tell us a little bit about your background a little bit. Uh, I've been a car guy since you know, since I collected matchbox cars when I was a little kid, um, you know, just loved them since day one, and um, I've always grown up around them. I actually worked for uh, for a major detailing product line company um, since I was 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, started with you know, det- actually just detailing cars and evolved with their um, with their products uh, over the years, and kind of that's how I kind of sunk into the, the automotive industry professionally. Uh, worked my way through there during school, throughout college, and uh, and just stayed with it, and then eventually uh, branched off doing my own thing with. The, uh, into the collector car market, and that's how I met Dana through his private collection, and that's kind of the rest is history. I see. Now, where are you from? You sound like you're from the Midwest. Um, is that a good guess? Uh, yeah, born and raised in Chicago. All right. Hey, speaking of Chicago, uh, you're a Ford or Chevy guy? Uh, Ford. Ford. Okay, good man. Well, anyway, my cousin uh, owns a place in Chicago called The Chevy Shop. I don't know if that's familiar to you or not, but anyway, he used to build a lot of high-performance motors for drag cars and race cars, running around cars, uh, short track cars, and race boats. So, but anyway, so yeah, I got some, I got roots in Chicago. So, cool <laughs> town. It's my kind of town, you know. It's ultra cool right now, 30 degrees and snowing, so. <laughs> okay. Well, cool means. Well, that's good. We got some connection there. But at any rate, so uh, how did you, so you basically were detailing Selling cars and buying and selling collectible cars, and that's how you met D- Dana, and then that's right. how you got involved in uh, working for him ultimately, right? Is that what happened? Yeah, that's right. You know, it, uh, you know, I'm just kind of evolved into the into the pre- what we call the presentation and marketing department here in the, at the headquarters in um, Southern Wisconsin, and um, you know, just kind of utilized my talents here for Dana and evolved into running the entire department for him. Super. Well, now is Meekum Auctions are they based out of Wisconsin? Is that where they are? They recently moved. We were in in a little town called Marengo, Illinois, which was uh, in between Rockford, Illinois, and Chicago. Okay. Uh, and then recently moved uh, just over the border uh, to a little town called Walworth, Wisconsin, where um, Dana has had a huge uh, a warehouse here to, that we've kind of used as a, a hub, so to speak, for cars coming in and out in between auctions, and it was just kind of a big storage warehouse. And then we built out a third of it into uh, our offices. With the, the growth we've had in the last five years, company wide, you know, we were just we were crawling all over each other in the in the offices we were in Illinois, and so. You know, he had this building and made the decision to build out a portion of it to, to house the office. So now we've, you know, we've grown about 10 employees full time. I think it was about six years ago to, I think we're pushing 60 or 70 now. Wow, that's amazing. Now, how many auctions does Meekum Auction do a year? Uh, we average about 12 a year. I think we did 14 in total in 2011. Our format for 2012 is pretty much just about one a month, really. Two auctions in June and two in August. Um, but yeah, one, just about once a month we're on the road. That's super. Now, is uh, Indy, would Indy be considered your uh, your biggest venue? I mean, in terms of popularity? Uh, Indy, which is uh, you know known as our, our spring classic, it's our flagship event. It's okay. what started Meekum Auctions. It's what Dana started with back in 1986 or 8887 mm-hmm. um, and you know has always been the the main event of, of, of our year Kissimmee has been evolving rapidly the last three or four years it's, just, it's essentially doubled in three years and you know this year actually has taken over as king like I said earlier that you know it's uh it's now the, the largest currently it's the largest auction we'll, we'll have ever had uh, last year at Indy we did 1920 cars and that was the most and then we've currently got 2074 slated for Kissimmee so um, we've got it beat by 
a couple hundred. And, you know, Indy's already starting to consign cars. And, and without a doubt, Indy could, you know, reclaim ownership of the world's largest off the fast. But, yeah, so a bit of an internal heavyweight title bout going on for the, uh, the world's largest. <laughs> Super. Now, it's interesting because uh, Barrett Jackson's next week. And historically, people always, I shouldn't say historically, but typically people refer to Barrett Jackson as the A, greatest show on earth or the largest car auction. However, you guys have essentially taken that title away in terms of the volume of cars, particularly here at, uh, at Kissimmee this year. Because last year, I think you had somewhat, somewhere around 1,700 cars, I think, at Kissimmee when I was there. And then right. this year, you've, you're over 300 cars more. So that's amazing. Right. Yeah, it is. You know what? As you said, you know, Bear Jackson out there, they do a wonderful job. They put on a, a great event, um, you know, uh, consider a, a world-class event, you know, with all the things they have going on. Um, they do offer, you know, uh, they're well over 1,000 cars, you know, but there's the uh, the magnitude of our event. It just, you know, it shows that there's there's plenty of cars east of the Mississippi, and we're certainly there to serve that that clientele as well. You know, it's a guy that's it's in New York or New Jersey or anywhere on the East Coast, really anywhere in the Midwest, you know, to, to haul a car all the way out to the West Coast is, is no cheap uh, no cheap date. No, so, that's true. It's about $1,400 to get from Chicago to Florida, for example, right. uh, you know, an that's enclosed right. carrier. So, yep. well, so, you know, that's what, you know, it's, it's good. Everything's doing well in Scottsdale, which is good. It's good for everybody. And we're, you know, we do our thing in Florida and, and service the rest of the country. And uh, we do very well there at what we do. And, you know, so it's, it's good to have something for everybody. Super. Well, I think one of the things that you've got going on is you've got a great selection of cars. I mean, you've got a combination of classics. you got some historic cars. you got race cars. you got muscle cars. Uh, you got some a lot of foreign stuff. I mean, you got a good variety of cars. And, and that's appealing to people, you know, because then you can, you know, you hit a broad uh, range of prospective buyers and sellers and collectors and so forth. And then the other thing, too, is the fact that you've got a reserve auction. That's a big play. A lot of people don't like a no reserve auction because you're a little apprehensive. Well, here I got $40,000 in the car. You know, I might only do 20 where at least here with a reserve, you know, and uh, that that's a good thing, too. So I think that's real appealing. Now, tell us about some of the feature cars that you're going to have at the Kissimmee auction. Well, we've got, you know, with over 2,000 cars, there's there's plenty to choose from. Um, you know, one of the things we, we, we pride ourselves on, on diversity and, mm-hmm. and having something for everyone, um, whether it be a $2,000 car or a million dollar car, we, 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 we completely ride the spectrum. So, you know, our, one of our main attractions for, for this year's event is a 1961 Corvette Gulf Oil race car. Uh, it was a SCCA B production national champion in 1961. Had drivers that year, Don Yanko, Yanko Chevrolet, raced to the championship by Dick Thompson, a uh, well-known Corvette racer known as the Flying Dentist. Um, so that's, you know, mm-hmm. an example of one of our, you know, high-level investment-grade cars. You know, we've got a 1930 Duesenberg. We've oh. got a 1937 Cord. We've got, you know, muscle cars. We've got two 64 Thunderbolts, uh, Ford Thunderbolts. They're amazing muscle cars. Ferraris, you name it. I mean, there's, there's, there's just, like I said, truly something for everyone. Well, now, it's interesting, too, because you're a Ford guy, and I'm a Ford guy, but uh, how about any Nicky Chevrolet cars there? Uh, you know, without looking, I don't know. We, I mean, we had a lot of Nicky cars that are... Uh or any event last year that we sold, we sold a, a collection of Nikki cars, which were was very exciting to have. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got. Uh, Do you remember Nikki Chevrolet back in Chicago back in the day? I'm ju- just outside of my uh, generation, just okay. not by much, but just outside. But I remember I'm definitely been, been knowledgeable about it, just being around here and being a car guy myself. Um, you know, my father was was um, you know big into that, and, and and everyone around, you know, all of you know my friends around the around the uh, the area, certainly high on the Nikki the Nikki 
key mark. So. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I can't remember, but I think the last time I went down the interstate there that cuts through uh, Chicago there, there was a couple old buildings that actually had, you could barely see, you could see it faintly on the side of the building. It's had like Nikki Chevrolet uh, advertising painted on the building. It was kind of faded and you can still see the backwards K. So for all you listeners out there, Nikki Chevrolet was like the Burger Chevrolet or Yanko Emotion uh, in the Chicago area. So uh, Nikki's a, was involved in racing way back in the 50s and 60s and they did road racing, drag racing. That was uh, General Motors' baby back in the day. So uh, anyway, so what do you got, uh, what does Dana have in his private collection? What are some of the cars that Dana collects? Can you tell us that? Uh, well, you know, he's, he's got quite a variety of cars himself. Um, you know, Dana, not many people know this, but Dana's also the, um, the president of the Harry Miller Club, which is, uh, Harry Miller was a, probably one of the most uh, influential and famous engine builders back in the late 20s and early 30s. Well, the Miller um, IndyCar Indi- yeah, engines, Miller right? Miller IndyCar right. is, is what, you know, so that's really the, Dana has a couple of those cars that are really the centerpiece to his collection and, and his mm. true passion. Okay. Um, so those are really, uh, he actually has them sitting in his office. Oh, that's <laughs> so, neat. Yeah. So uh, he's pretty proud of those cars. Now, do you, um, does, you does, know, do you guys have a big showroom up there in Wisconsin? So in other words, let's say I was on vacation. Could I come visit the headquarters of Meekum and there's a showroom with cars on display? No. Uh, our, we're, we're, we are building what, what, what will be known as, a Meek, as the Meekum Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, that's being built out right now as part of the remodel of this building. It's not open to the public. Um, you know, it will be, um, I'm not sure, I don't, I'd be, I don't want to speak out of turn and say what it exactly it's, it will be used for, other than I do know that we'll be housing, um, you know, future collections, up, upcoming um, cars for future sales we may put on display here, you know, as part of the gallery. But as far as it being open to the public, I don't, I don't know that it ever will be, you know, but... Because uh, like so, Barrett-Jackson, right for example, they have a showroom down the street there off of uh, Scottsdale Boulevard. And I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. so that people could go there and look at some of their cars or some of the cars on collect, uh, some of the cars sure. featured in sales. So, it may be open on a, on a limited basis at some point in time when it's done. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's it's about six months from even talking about that sort of thing. So, All right. So tell us a little bit about the auction this weekend or at the end of the month. So you're going to have over 2,000 cars and the majority of the cars are going to be reserve cars, I would presume. We're, we're known as a reserve auction. So okay. yeah, I mean, the majority of the cars will have reserve. We'll probably have 15, 20% of the cars will be offered without reserve, but that's simply by the customer's choice mm-hmm. uh, to sell the cars at no reserve. will be held at the Osceola Heritage Park in Kissimmee. It will basically take over the entire grounds there and fill it with, with classic cars. Super. Um, starting the auction start Tuesday, January 24th, run all the way through Sunday, the 29th. You know, we start auctioning cars at 9 a.m. and we'll probably sell them all the way through till close to midnight. So even if you can't make all day, you get off work and drive out, we'll still be working. So okay. come out and, and see the show. It's 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 fifteen dollars to, to get in daily. Kids twelve and under are free. Uh, we have uh, a great family friendly environment. We encourage everybody to come out. Kids can you know have a good time just as much as the parents and you know for 15 bucks it's it's the best car show you'll ever see i'll be darned now what's the buyer premium and the seller premium that me comes sellers are charged seven percent seller's commission if they decide to sell their vehicle on the block if it meets reserve or they choose to lift the reserve if you sell your car no reserve there's a five percent seller's commission uh so we have some of the lowest sales commission in the um, of all the major competitors okay of so very reasonable buyers premiums are six percent for all purchases well that's a good deal Uh, yes it's very reasonable all right now what if i consign my car how much is a consignment fee because you got to pay that on top too right uh we do charge an entry fee uh which vary based on the positions uh based on day and time they range anywhere from 
dollars all the way up to a thousand dollars. Okay. All right. And then of course Friday evening and Saturday evening being prime time, correct? Uh, well, really, I mean, our events are you know prime time is really um, you know we're our, our television show starts Wednesday late afternoon and runs uh, eight hours a day Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So truly, that's all prime time. So, but yeah, I mean, Friday Friday afternoon to evening, Saturday uh, pretty much all day into evening is all very much so prime time. Okay. Now you're going to be there, right? Oh yeah, well, I'm flying out a week from tomorrow. Okay, super. Well, I will be there, and I will definitely uh, make a point to uh, meet you this time. Last year, I had Tom Crispin on the show, and uh, he's very partial to Chevrolets and Corvettes, so we got through it. But at any rate, so you'll be a hell of a lot more fun because we can talk Ford stuff. What kind of Fords are you into, by the way? <laughs> well, Mustangs mostly is Good. really what I've always had a passion for is, you know, the you know Mach 1s and Bostro 2s and, and things like that. But, uh, you know, I've kind of um, expanded. I've, I've really kind of I've lately bit the bug on the old stuff. I kind of, you know, the 50s and uh, okay. early 60s stuff I've been I've been kind of become a fan of lately. So Super. Um, well, I'm a Boss 302 nut, so I know a lot about those, and I've always been a Shelby guy. As a matter of fact, I'm one of the state reps for the Shelby Club here, too. So that'll give us something else to talk about. But I, th- good. Cool. I think we're just about out of time, but uh, you're right. The, the late 50s. 50s, early 60s classic cars like the huge movement right now. So my guess is that you like 63, 64 Galaxies? Yeah, I love those things. They're great. Um, you know, the, any, anything forward in the early 60s really just trips my trigger. So. Mm-hmm. Well, super. Um, well, anyway, Sam, I want to thank you for coming on the show. You are Sam Murtaugh from Meekum Auctions. Now, if they need to get a hold of you in marketing, they can just contact you through what is it, MeekumAuctions.com? Is that it? Meekum.com. Real simple. M-E-C-U-M.com. Everything there they need is on the website. Uh, all the latest inventory for all the upcoming events, information, how to get a hold of us. It's all there. Okay, super. All right, well, uh, Sam, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. This is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We'll see you guys at the end of the month at Meekum. All right, Sam, talk to you later. Thank you. All right, thanks.